0: Friends and welcome back to the Dining Hall Digest. For those just tuning in, this podcast is an attempt to recreate those unique dining hall conversations that you have with friends, from everything about the hottest new Netflix series to the movements that challenge us and push us to be better. It is strange now to think that in some spaces, dining halls may become obsolete with the new challenges posed by COVID-19. But despite the shrinkage of these sacred spaces, one thing still remains, and that's the power of young people to ask and think about thought-provoking questions and challenges and the ability of these young people to imagine and work for a new, more free world. Our podcast focuses each episode on the efforts and insights of a different young person who's making this world a more just, equitable, and loving place. If you have folks in mind that fit this description, please let us know. Young people are not just the future of leadership, but rather are the present creators of movements, ideas, and communities that will change the world. I'm Elizabeth. I'm Nick. And this is the Dining Hall Digest. So today we're going to be talking about reproductive justice, but specifically reproductive justice in religious spaces, and Nick is going to introduce the guest.
1: Yes, our guest. We're really excited to have Natasha Reifenberg. She graduated from the University of Notre Dame in 2018 with a degree in philosophy. During her undergrad years, she researched the phenomenon of women being incarcerated for reproductive crimes in El Salvador. After graduation, she worked with asylum seekers fleeing gender-based violence at the National Immigrant Justice Center. And she spent a year in Chile conducting the first qualitative study on students' experience with sexual harassment and what actions they took in the absence of formal processes. She is now working at the Family Justice Center as a domestic violence caseworker with a focus on undocumented and non-English speaking populations. Natasha, we're so glad to have you here.
2: Happy to be here.
1: So we usually like to ask, uh, people about like a fun fact and one thing that we really enjoyed from your Instagram stories is how many baby Yoda memes that you put mm-hmm. on there so we wanted to know, ask like what is your favorite baby Yoda meme?
2: You know it's one of those things where it's probably just like the most recent one that I see is my favorite one. Um, I'm a huge fan though of so there's like a scene where baby Yoda sipping tea and they oftentimes put like sunglasses like kind of really fabulous sunglasses on on him and like a little robe when he calls you crazy but you can't see it and it's like baby with sunglasses or like when you realize that you're not going to win the argument but you decide to just be more aggressive <laughs> i love that to yeah. channel that energy if it Yes. <laughs> oh that's
0: awesome
1: so as elizabeth mentioned our topic today is reproductive justice in religious spaces but we want to talk about Reproductive justice in general first uh, and our first question is just generally what is reproductive justice? What does it mean
2: yeah.
1: in practice?
2: Reproductive justice usually has much more of a intersectional lens than just thinking about reproductive rights the way that I think about reproductive rights um, reproductive rights address legal issues reproductive health addresses service delivery and reproductive justice focuses on movement building so reproductive justice asks much broader questions about how does class affect access? How does race affect access? Um, How does gender identity affect access? And um, all three together are essential for ensuring, you know, safety and full lives for all people.
1: And I guess kind of a follow-up. So you said Mm -hmm. it's about access. Is reproductive justice just about abortion?
2: No. So reproductive justice thinks about access yes to abortion that is certainly a critical component but also to birth control obviously but i think most importantly and in the sense that it's so often left out but the rights of pregnant women to continue with their pregnancies to not be to not face ill treatment to be able to continue with their pregnancy if that's what they choose to do and to find support in policies and in their communities so It's about access for women who wish to no longer be pregnant and women who wish to be pregnant, and just all across the spectrum, like from the age of 13 until tomb.
1: So talking about reproductive justice, I think we'd be remiss without talking about the threats to reproductive rights during Mm -hmm. the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm -hmm. Several US states have attempted to limit access to abortion during the pandemic through deeming the procedure non-essential and then Mm-hmm. banning non-essential procedures. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts about this?
2: Um, my thoughts about it, and I've read you know, several of the language of the bans that have put out in states like Louisiana and Texas, and some of them have been struck down by lower courts and some of them haven't because they'll just kind of sprout a new ban. And it's unfortunate that they're using a serious, very serious public health crisis to do something that's really contrary to the goals of public health because what we know is that women are still going to try to access abortion so what it makes them do is just travel across state boundaries and you know maybe go to places that have a higher population density also wait longer to access um to recourse to abortion which just makes the the procedure which is a really safe procedure more dangerous as it goes later into the pregnancy so the effects of the ban are contrary to any kind of ostensible, well, like intention that there could be to protect quote unquote health.
1: And another aspect of this is so, and there's an article from NPR that mm-hmm. reported that remotely, so telemedicine, which has really emerged in a big way and might, it might yeah. persist after, is very heavily res- regulated. Mm-hmm. Um, through all 50 states, but in 18 states, remotely prescribing abortion pills is outright banned. Mm-hmm. So. I mean, how how do you how does access to abortion meaningful in those states in in, in this time?
2: I mean, it just makes it more dangerous. There's really safe ways to, to to get an abortion, and which is through telemedicine. I mean, I have almost all my doctor's appointments through telemedicine. It's it's an amazing resource, and again, it's just really unfortunate because it's not going to decrease abortion rates. It's just going to make them more dangerous and it's going to push women to travel in a time when we really should try to be minimizing travel.
0: And it's interesting, reproductive justice is this issue that's really forced us to look at and critique our own country mm-hmm. and the practices here. But we also know that you've done extensive work in this field comparatively across the world, yeah. in El Salvador, mm-hmm. in Chile, and in the US. So what are some overlapping themes or problems that have arisen in these three contexts? And then mm-hmm. also contrasting, what are some really
2: stark differences that you see between the three, if if those are there? Yeah, well, the, the similarity that runs across, and I'm sure this isn't just El Salvador, Chile, the U.S., I'm, I'm sure it's all countries, and if like there's anything I want people to take away from this conversation is that at its most fundamental level, reproductive rights, since that's kind of the legal side, it's, it's always going to affect people unequally as, as it relates to class. Like restrictions on abortions, like really serious criminal penalties, they're just never going to apply to rich women. It's just, they don't, it doesn't work like that in the US. It doesn't work like that in El Salvador. It doesn't work like that in Chile. The women who will ultimately suffer, the consequences of draconian laws are poor women who are already suffering from different like, you know, negative health outcomes and already don't have good access to healthcare. It's always gonna kind of fall heaviest on their shoulders. And we see that. So like what I was doing in El Salvador was studying Women who had been incarcerated for suffering obstetric emergencies, so like stillbirths, miscarriages, and were charged with aggravated homicide, and in the like 136 cases we reviewed, not a single one of those like denouncements, so basically a, a doctor or a police officer or a neighbor reporting on a woman they s- suspected had had an abortion, not a one of those came from a private hospital. Yeah, okay. not not one. So and then when we look at the United States and um, there are different people find this really surprising and I think when I talk about El Salvador it seems like this is such a backwards country and how could they be doing this but we have pretty similar not laws on the books obviously because obviously abortion is Ro, Roe v Wade is still law of the land <laughs> at a very superficial level it is still law of the land. Um, but we do state by state have certain fetal harm laws that in the end have very similar consequences of poor, you know, especially women of color in this country who live in more rural areas being um, charged with different crimes for behavior that if it weren't happening during pregnancy would not be illegal. So. There have been women who have charged, especially in Alabama and Louisiana, under these fetal harm laws or "quote unquote" child endangerment laws, where a child is interpreted as fetus and environment is interpreted as womb. So, I there's a case. ProPublica did a great story on this, and I found that like 1,400 women in Alabama had actually been charged under the, the fetal harm law. Under yeah, and. Over what period of time is that? A couple of years. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly which years. But it was for behavior like falling down the stairs, refusing a C-section, mm-hmm. smoking, taking a Valium. And even with drug abuse, obviously that isn't the way that we should be dealing with substance abuse while being pregnant. It's not throwing someone in jail. That's yeah. not good for anyone. Yeah. So that's the biggest similarity is just how... I don't think these laws would stand as they are if they affected everyone equally, if it, if it affected ritual.
0: And you've already talked about this, the intersectionality of mm-hmm. it, but I would like to kind of dig in a bit more. So mm-hmm. there's this great book that's, that's pretty recent called Hood Feminism, and there's this wonderful quote in it that says, um, this tendency to assume that all women are experiencing the same struggles, which has led us to a place where reproductive health imagery centers on cisgender, able-bodied women, To the exclusion of those who are trans, intersex, or otherwise inhibiting bodies that don't fit the narrow idea that genitalia dictates gender. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about these intersections Mm -hmm. and how you've seen, you know, the the non-white, cisgender, able-bodied woman represented in these three
2: contexts. There's, like, been some amazing sociological research on this, especially Jean Flavin, who has really been the one who's dug really deep on, like, women getting incarcerated because they are pregnant, because they are engaging certain behaviors while they're pregnant. Her whole kind of thesis is that it's because they don't conform to the idea of a good mother, and it's the same in El Salvador. It's, it's women who don't conform to the idea of a good mother. Who's a good mother? She's white, she's middle class, she's cisgender, she's married and when people who are not cis who are non-binary who are trans or people of color who are poor who are single who are very young fall outside of kind of this like ideal of white middle class motherhood that's when we start to see criminalization and that was very apparent in the court documents that i reviewed in el salvador where a judge would say i'm, I'm not quoting verbatim but it basically he said this in his sentencing where he Put this woman in jail for 40 years that clearly she didn't want the baby and wanted to kill the baby because she had never sought prenatal care. And that that's just an impossibility when this is a 17-year-old girl in rural El Salvador. The closest clinic is two hours walking. So it's just kind of the conditions are unachievable for, for some people, and when they fall outside of like good motherhood ideals, yeah, that's exactly where we see criminalization happening. Yeah.
0: And we're gonna pivot in the next segment and talk about reproductive justice in religious mm-hmm. spaces, but I think it's interesting because you've operated in places that tend to have strong Catholic undertones too, but when we look at who is the prime example mm-hmm. in the Catholic faith it's Mary, who's actually, when she became pregnant, an unwedded, probably yeah. low-income, non-white yeah. woman. So mm-hmm. it's interesting to see how, if that's really the example, mm-hmm. why are we criminalizing right. these women that don't fit right. that? So we'll be back with Natasha to talk about <laughs> reproductive justice in religious spaces. So as you mentioned, now in this bit, we want to focus a bit more on the connection between uh, reproductive justice and the way that it shows up or maybe kind of fought against in these religious spaces. So Natasha, I was wondering if, if, if you know and if you could tell us a bit more about the history of the right to life versus you know, right to choice movement in the US. I think it's so politicized now, and especially at our campus on Notre Dame, you just see it. And, there's this, we were mentioning before, this new show that's out called Mrs. America, and it kind of documents the work of this conservative female activist, Phyllis Schlafly, and the way that she led this fight of women against the right to choose. So I was wondering if you could just talk a bit more about that.
2: We, we like to think that the positions that current, you know, religious denominations take now, that our parties take now, are kind of timeless, and that it's always been this way, but... What really surprises people is that the biggest underground um, kind of abortion provider before Roe v. Wade was a group of clergy members. Yeah, it was like the clergy abortion provider network. And it had over a thousand clergy members who helped women get abortions and it was the biggest and there are really amazing testimonials from catholic priests rabbis protestant ministers that say that you know they didn't go into this thinking they were going to help women get connected to safe abortion providers but it was in working with the poor and seeing how much suffering there was with women giving birth nine times and not being able to literally not being able to feed their children so it was very um, informed by <laughs> real kind of like hard, tough real life experiences. And abortion really was not kind of the hot button political polarizing issue that it is now. Pre-1970s it really came about with moral majority and this kind of grand strategy of getting evangelicals to start voting and to start seeing themselves as political actors. And abortion was a A huge um, push for that but now we have you know one issue voters on the topic of abortion then I think 50 years ago that was certainly not the case
0: yeah and I think oftentimes you see people who claim that they're committed to this this right to life but then you don't really see those same folks standing up for the right to immigrant Mm -hmm. lives or undocumented lives and that's it just doesn't make sense it seems Mm -hmm. to conflate the two and so a question that we have for you is I guess how do you advocate for the freedom to choose mm-hmm. and this reproductive justice mm-hmm.
2: against a strong religious background? Mm-hmm. Well, I think um, you know, for for me, I am very I was very entrenched in the values of liberation theology in the school I went to when I was younger, and those values are about caring for the poor, about creating a really substantive preferential option for the poor, about listening to marginalized voices, uplifting the poor, and that's kind of where my belief my beliefs in abortion are, are rooted is is in those values and is in evidence-based research. And that's kind of what informs me. So I don't even see them, for me at least, as, as totally disconnected. And from a Catholic perspective, um, the the Church's position on abortion hasn't been, of course, as time... You know, the history yeah. is so interesting. Like, St. Augustine thought that the soul entered the the fetus at 90 days for men, 50 days for women. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and for a while the church's position was against abortion, but that was only because the idea was that the only women who would be seeking abortions were one who had engaged in extramarital affairs, and it was it wasn't rooted in like the sanctity of life, for yeah. example. Yeah. So there has been some discussion, and there, especially around Vatican two, there were like all these really interesting discussions that theologians were having, and the um, international commission that the Pope set up to to discuss the issue of birth control actually said the church should not be against birth control. That's what this international commission of clergy and non-clergy thought. So yeah, it's really, really interesting. And when we look at the catechism, it really emphasizes the importance of conscience. And I know that for for many women I know who are Catholics, they are pro-choice because they would never want to take away that kind of moral process from someone else or, or engage in that kind of really deep, insightful, very personal choice for someone else, and I've what something that one of my friends told me was that she is on birth control precisely because she never wants to be in a position where she has to get an abortion. So, you know, for her, yeah, yes. being on birth control is a huge part of her her faith. It lets her live out her faith. Yeah.
0: Do you see? Is there some middle ground that the more the folks who really follow that more mm-hmm. conservative Christian? You know, practice versus the folks who kind of take that liberation theology social teaching approach is there a middle ground that
2: they can reach this? i mean i think there is because and that's i I understand how naive it can sound to be like we can all just get along we have you know (laughs) underlying principles which is improving you know the well-being of of people Mm -hmm. um but instead of kind of taking that super optimistic approach my approach is much more pragmatic in the sense of if there is common ground we're only going to find it by looking for it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right and by actually engaging with people and being really generous because most people don't come to their views on abortion through some rational decision making process or from reading a bunch of you know philosophical papers and being like I actually think I'm pro-life you know for almost everyone it's it's from our backgrounds it's from what our our personal experiences and when you engage with someone on that level instead of trying to argue with them but understanding like kind of the, the socio the like micro sociology behind their views um it can be a lot more pleasant and what I've so I did a lot of like focus group interviews uh, around abortion in El Salvador and when it was under this professor and when she was kind of going through the research review process all these people thought like who's going to want to talk to you about this like people are not going to open up this is a country that has you know such draconian laws you know the public opinion data is 98 percent pro life they're not really going to want to engage on this issue and she found that people were ecstatic and I found that too to have a space that was safe where they could actually kind of present their views without feeling like they were going to get attacked and like that everything was going to be nitpicked and I from understanding that and seeing that firsthand I like wanted to bring that to Notre Dame and like did this dialogue dinner with the pro-life club and I think most people had a really really positive experience because the whole point of the dinner was that it wasn't a debate but a dialogue and that we could find things that we really agreed on that went beyond just the kind of the legal personhood of the fetus. Mm-hmm. But I, and I think not criminalizing pregnant bodies is like a huge first step.
1: Yeah. Kind of building on your years at Notre Dame, you were one of the named plaintiffs in Irish for Reproductive Health the Lawsuit. Only <laughs> the only named <laughs> plaintiff <laughs> yes. in Irish Reproductive <laughs> Health's <laughs> <laughs> lawsuit against the University of Notre Dame yeah. about access to contraception. Mm-hmm. I I've I read a little bit, but could you just tell us why yeah, for Reproductive Health is suing the university?
2: Right. So Notre Dame has taken various positions, and it's really important to understand what those different positions have been in the span of six months to understand kind of the basis of the lawsuit and what the lawsuit is saying. So, yeah, I don't. it's so easy to get really into the weeds, but, okay, with, you know, ACA, Obamacare, this is huge. So for the first time ever employers through health care had to provide no copay contraceptive to their employees. Mm-hmm. Okay. There was a lot of pushback from that from um, religious organizations. So mm-hmm. oh, the Obama administration carved out an exception for religious organizations like Notre Dame that said, okay, you don't have to ever directly put $1 towards Towards contraceptives, towards something that you have a, a a reasonable moral religious objection to, all you have to do is check this box that states that you have this objection. And Notre Dame engaged in this, you know, million dollar year, multi-year long legal battle, saying us checking the box is akin to us engaging in the sin of contraception. Okay, that was, the legal, that was the legal argument that they were making. And then the Trump administration put out this, through an executive order, an exemption for religious and moral objections. Um, so it could be in the corporate world, the NGO world, to not have to abide by that part of the ACA mandate, even with the exception that was carved out. Um, Notre Dame took that, took that deal. Almost no other university did. They took it very publicly. They received a bunch of backlash. So they actually changed their position saying, never mind, we go back on this. We respect the the plurality of our community. Okay. Then they got pushback from that from the more conservative alumni. And again, Notre Dame changed its position saying that they were going to actually bring contraceptive, which used to be provided by a third party insurer in-house and not, not cover contraception. They got a little pushback from that. This is the final reversal, and they said, okay, we're actually just going to cover simple contraceptives. Simple contraceptives is a made-up term. That's not a medical term. It's not a scientific term. It's a term, I don't know if Father Jenkins came up with it or who came up with it, but that's kind of what they decided to use. It was not clear what that term meant. They said it's to not cover abortifacients. The issue with that is... There's no real robust scientific literature around what is a quote unquote abortifacient and what isn't. It's a lot of speculation around what actually would prevent implantation and what wouldn't. So they decided, you know, most IUDs don't fall under this. Many different forms of, of just the pill don't fall under this. They kind of arbitrarily decided what doesn't. They didn't go by like the FDA guidelines and the FDA classifies contraceptives necessarily as ones that do not operate after Fertilization. So the lawsuit centers has various arguments. One is that Notre Dame violated the APA and not ever engaging with employees, students. It was kind of a quote unquote backroom deal with the Trump administration. So that's like the really kind of technical administrative complaint that this uh, Supreme Court case of Little Sisters of the Poor v. Pennsylvania does not address. And then they also say that it actually violates the the Religious Freedom Act because they ha- that act says that you have to balance religious freedom considerations with other substantive interests of the government and that the health of students is a substantive, and employees is a substantive interest. So they were saying, you know, they really bargained away the... So a, a private employer cannot bargain the, away the rights of their employees with the government. That is against the law. And that's precisely what Notre Dame did. So that's kind of the the major basis of the lawsuit.
1: So we, you mentioned the Little Sisters in the Poor case. Yeah. Um, a few years ago, we had the Hobby Lobby case. Mm-hmm. We're seeing a lot of these cases where an employer's like moral religious objections yeah. kind of override the yeah. right of employees to get the, this kind of health care. Focusing on the Little Sisters of the Poor case, can you tell like what effect this case has on the Irish reproductive health? So
2: actually, as of now, that is quote unquote under review. Like the lawyers from Notre Dame and the lawyers from the Center for Human Rights and the National Women's Law Center are still not sure how it exactly affects because the Supreme Court case actually doesn't speak to the constitutionality of the content of the Trump administration's exemption. It only it only addresses, it's very narrow in its scope. So no, no, most of the time when we see it in the media that they decided on this, we think they're just like, yes, this is constitutional, this is good. No, it's not like that. They, they kind of decided on narrow grounds that the government does have that rulemaking ability to in effect make that kind of executive order but that doesn't actually mean anything for in practice you know that could continue to be litigated so it's unclear and it's not the same it's not the same facts or the same the same facts are not being disputed in the notre dame lawsuit versus the little sisters of war but like yeah looking at this trend the trend we're seeing i mean oftentimes it's it's posited as women's health versus religious freedom and i think that is (laughs) As I was talking to my friend, um, Alexis, I just want to give her credit for this idea because she was saying it's a very impoverished way of approaching it because it's making it seem like the women who it's affecting don't have the right to religious freedom and that it's right because, like I just talked about, my one friend who wants to use birth control to prevent herself from being in a situation of abortion, that is her exercising her religious freedom. And I felt like I was exercising my, you know, engaging in a moral, religious process of decision-making when i decided that i wanted to have an iud so right it's a very impoverished way of looking at it and we're a a very problematic trend that i'm seeing the supreme court not just on matters of reproductive health care but kind of beyond is this idea that we're going to treat corporations and bigger organizations as people one and that their rights kind of can supersede the rights of any individuals and that the rights of the employer are somehow more urgent and singular than the the rights of thousands and thousands of individuals that these ruins are affecting
1: and just kind of wrapping it up our Mm -hmm. last question is uh what does the future of reproductive justice in america look like to you this is a very complicated question and affected by the fact that there's a conservative supreme court right. and we don't know how the next election is going to go we don't know a lot of things but what does it look like
2: to you i mean this is kind of what reproductive rights advocates have been saying for years is that the future of reproductive rights is not going to be decided by a supreme court case it's going to die the death of by a thousand paper cuts unfortunately yeah. through trap laws um there's more and more states that just have abortion deserts that have one clinic it's just it has you have to look at the What's happening on the ground and what's happening in the practice. Could you
1: could you define what trap laws are?
2: Oh yeah, trap laws are targeted regulations at abortion providers, and what def- what separates a trap law from a different kind of health regulation is that they're created with the purpose of limiting abortion access and that they're not they don't really have a medical basis. So for example, one that I like to point to is North Carolina has a bunch of different trap laws that have led the state from having like 16 clinics, or so I think one right now, and they have certain restrictions that would never apply to a hospital, that the waiting room has to have a certain degree of humidity, and if it doesn't have that degree of humidity, the clinic can get shut down, and also that the, they have to submit the landscaping plans and the sprinkler plans every year, and if they don't do that, the clinic can get shut down. So there's, there's really no... We are talking before about like restrictions due to COVID and then, at, you know, they can sort of pretend that it's for public health reasons, but yeah. you can't even get away with that with many yeah. trap laws. And they're, they're written by politicians and the politicians are writing laws that doctors have to abide by and tell their patients, you know, medically inaccurate things about, you know, fetal development and breast cancer and rates of breast cancer after having an abortion and depression and suicidal ideations and things like that. Yeah, and
1: you and you think that because of the proliferation of them right now, that yeah. that is it's possible that those are gonna be the thousand cuts
2: Absolutely, at yeah. the access
1: to abortion that's
2: yeah at and least
1: under Roe v. Wade right now.
2: Yeah, I think what we can look for for hope are kind of really creative ways that practitioners and advocates and policymakers are trying to reach people, like telemedicine. You know, like these creative solutions, um, that's kind of where, where I see hope and, and just in education, like sex ed in high schools, like yeah. things like that, that is that is so salient towards advancing the goals of, of reproductive justice.
1: I know that I said that was the last question, okay, but I have friend. one more. Um, so Elizabeth mentioned Mrs. America at the beginning and you kind of mentioned it, this huge kind of more majority conservative movement that yeah. really reigned in the 70s and 80s especially. Yeah. Was this huge organizational effort, arguably not grassroots? It was really f- funded by huge corporate Astro-turf. interests. Astroturf. Astroturf. <laughs> before, like, it, we really understood what that term mm-hmm. was. So, how how does how do like self-identified liberals like organize for this kind of work?
2: I think it's in recognizing that. For so obviously, the tradition that I'm most familiar with is the Catholic tradition, but it's really the people who are supposed to make up the church. It's, like the people are the body of Christ it's not just like the Pope it's it's really the people that are the ones who are are living out this religion day to day and when we look at the statistics that we know about how women of Catholic faith practice their religion in the United States you know over 80 percent of Catholic women are are using use artificial contraception at some point in their life women who are Catholic access abortion at the same exact rates of women of other religious backgrounds, no religious backgrounds, and 83%, I think it was 83 or 85% of Catholics, according to a Pew pu- poll don't have any moral objection to the use of artificial contraception to prevent pregnancy. So we really have to find one, solace in that, and two, understand the power and solidarity that can come from where the majority, like the your religious leaders need to understand that, how people practice their faith and what they believe is obviously relevant to the tenets of the church and if almost no one actually believes this and they're just preaching it without any follow-through there has to be some kind of serious moral reckoning i think within certain religious traditions as well
1: thank you so much so at the end of every episode Mm -hmm. we ask uh, our guests um, what's something happy uh, something in the world that has given you joy in the past couple weeks mm. um it's kind of a dark time right now <laughs> <laughs> um and just to give you some time to think i'll go first okay. um i'm visiting south bend right now and on my way to new haven and i stopped at this cafe that elizabeth actually recommended called south Bend cafe have you been there it's right next to the morris performing arts center it's this tiny little coffee shop oh my gosh yeah. and um, i went in yesterday because um, I saw that they had sandwiches and I got this sandwich called the Hipster Panini and it was apple slices, peanut butter, cheese and bacon and it was the strangest sandwich I've ever had and I got it again today and it was, I just love it that was something that gave me a lot of joy
0: this. I'll go, so our, our, both of our joys are like food or drink related this <laughs> cool, week cool. South Bend Central um, I just moved back to South Bend this weekend and I love the Purple Porch which is a co-op yes. in South Bend for those who don't know and I was just really feeling the purple porch food yesterday, so I made the five-mile like round-trip walk to wow. go, yeah, yes, for the sole purpose of buying half a gallon of chocolate milk in a glass jar. And I haven't been that happy in weeks, so it was really—it was a good little thing for me.
1: I can't attest to its to its existence
0: yeah. <laughs> in refrigerator. Yes. This is all I wanted, but it makes me very happy. So Natasha, what's a moment either um, in your life or?
2: Yeah. Well, my sister just got back from Seattle, and this is related to food and drink because she is like the most amazing chef. She makes the best drinks, so she made sweet potato nochi. She was just making fun of how I pronounce that word, the last word. (laughs) And (laughs) tonight she's making like freshly squeezed lemonade margaritas. Wow! So I I might pop over your house. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds great. Well, thank you so much
1: natasha for joining us thank you to all the listeners follow us on social media at dhdcast on instagram and twitter tell your friends why not listen to it with them i don't know
0: (laughs) and a last little note from us is to everyone just to be well be whole be healthy and make sure to take care of each other community care is even more important than self-care sometimes so make sure that we're investing in one another thanks again natasha